Please take your Bibles and join me in the book of Philippians, chapter 1. We will spend uh, today and three more for a total of four Sundays in the book of Philippians and uh, consider these four chapters together through the month of November. I trust that these will be good days for our souls and hearts as we uh, seek to walk after Christ together. It would help for us to uh, know a little about Philippians, so here's a little background. Uh, perhaps one of the most famous uh, missionary passages in the Bible occurs in Acts chapter 16, where uh, the scripture declares that uh, the Apostle Paul was prohibited from speaking anymore in uh, Asia, and he was called uh, in a in a mystical way, perhaps, but nonetheless real. Uh, in Acts chapter 16, verse uh, 6, a, a man from Macedonia. Macedonia is uh, not a place that all of us would be familiar with, but uh, we've all heard of Greece, so Macedonia would be a region uh, in the, the nation of Greece at the time, and uh, now uh, a country unto itself. But nonetheless... Uh, to come to Macedonia to share Christ there. And so the apostle closes down shop in his Asia ministry, and he goes across the, the uh, sea there to the first location for the gospel to be preached in the continent of Europe. The first European church ever started is Philippi. The first European convert recorded in the Bible to Christ is the woman that we read about in Acts 16.11, where the scripture says that, uh, that we set sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and we're there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia. Paul didn't just go to the small towns, he was wont to go to the big cities to the prominent cities. Philippi was a very prominent city, a Roman colony, the Bible said. Uh, again, for those of us that are not familiar with Roman government, that means that they were independent. That was a place where you did not have to pay Roman taxes. That was a place where if you were a resident of that city, all of the other towns in the Roman Empire paid taxes so that you didn't have to. Sound like a great place to be, right? So Philippi was a Roman colony, prominent. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Philippi is the first European location for a New Testament church, and Lydia is the first convert on the continent of Europe. All of this because of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. As we read Philippians over this month, we'll be uh, reminded that this is a very personal letter. Paul 
has 13 letters attributed to him in the New Testament. Several of those were written to individuals, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, four of those. But of the remaining nine, all addressed to local churches, there is none of those nine more personal than this one. Philippians is the church that ministers to Paul, that loves Paul, that serves Paul, that stands with Paul, that is connected to Paul when no other church would. It is a church that he dearly loved. Not just because it was the first church he started in Europe, but because it was a church rather that engaged with that which God was doing in his life. And we're going to see that as we read Philippians. There is personal uh, testimony and uh, affection that uh, basically steps off the page, every page. So let's read together the first chapter of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. 
because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. As we read, you understand that Paul is in prison and that he understands that his imprisonment is according to the will of God. There's virtually no person in popular America who believes that their suffering is a gift from God. And yet, this is the witness of Paul throughout his writings, that these experiences of hardship and difficulty, and this is but one snapshot of difficulty. There are many more. Read 2 Corinthians 12, and you will see Paul's testimony. Paul suffered like no man has ever suffered except the Lord Jesus. And yet, in the midst of all of that suffering, in the midst now of his current imprisonment for the gospel, probably in Rome, he writes... I am delighted to stay here because it is for your good. I'm delighted to put up with these sorrows and these difficulties because these things result in your profit. And I'm thankful for your partnership in my sorrows because that is also not only to my profit, but to yours. In other words, Paul's theology of sorrow or theology of suffering is far different than what we will find in contemporary America. Our theology goes something like this, that when our life hurts, God made a mistake. God has cheated me out of the easy road that others have been privileged to walk. Why them? Why me? That's the contemporary theology. And that is not the theology of this man who suffered in ways that are unparalleled. And yet in the midst of his suffering, his constant reminder is for joy. Joy, he says from the outset, verse 4, in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. We're going to see much more about joy before we're done here. In fact, affectionately, the book of Philippians is called the gospel of joy. If you're discouraged, I would encourage you to return again and again and again to the book of Philippians because Paul makes no bones about it that there's ample reason to be full of joy in spite of circumstances that the world would find sorrowful. So I just want to show you three things that are worthy of highlight here, many more perhaps, but, but certainly these three. And I want to show you these things as they buoy or, or bolster our confidence in God and point us ultimately toward a greater joy. First of all, I want you to note in verse 7 that we all share a common source, if you will, a common beginning. 
Notice, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. You're all partakers with me of grace. We've said many times, and I repeat it again, the Bible makes no distinctions about people in the way the world makes those distinctions. The Bible nowhere divides people in the way the world divides people. The world divides people according to socioeconomic status, according to race, according to ethnicity, according to language, according to all these things. And they love, the world does, to pigeonhole people in class and say, because you're of this class, you are not worthy of this class. And there are many cultures around the world that are built on a class system. And though we would not say that is expressed explicitly in America, I assure you it is nonetheless true. That's the way of the world. It is not the way of God. Instead, he says, verse 7, we are all partakers with him of grace. You see, the gospel treats us all the same because we are all the same. In spite of the way the world would divide us, God sees no such division. He recognizes that there are only two people in the world, two kinds of people, those who recognize his glory and those who reject his glory, those who embrace him as God and those who deny him as God. And those who embrace him as God are all partakers of the same grace Paul didn't drink from some fountain of supernatural water. And neither is anyone else who's a Christian. Instead, we're the recipients of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. We have the same Bible. We have the same Savior. We have the same gospel. And it's the same blood that avails for every one of us. And the notion of distinction is not biblical. Instead, we are to be those who rejoice that God has poured out his grace upon us and we have all consumed from that grace. We've all taken benefit from that. You'll note in verse 6, he's appealing, first of all, to the spiritual birth. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he's referencing the spiritual birth. Look at verse 29 in this chapter. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him. In other words, the gospel message or the gospel grace that we've all partaken in is the spiritual birth. You must be born again. You must be born again. If you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, as the one who has died in your place for your sin penalty then I beg of you, be born again. Come to Christ. Come to Christ in faith. Believe this gospel because this is that which binds us together. This is what makes us one. This is the fundamental distinction that God advances for us. But he means more than that when he refers to grace in verse 7. You're all partakers with me of grace and because he amplifies it. Notice, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He's referencing shared life circumstances. There is a, there, if you will, there is an ownership. And I mean that in a, an affectionate way. 
Think about your own relationships. Invariably, we will ask people, how, how are you doing? Then the next question, how's your family doing? And we know how our family's doing. Now, if we went on and we said, well, how's your next door neighbor doing? Many of us would say, I have no idea. Uh, how are the folks at work doing? I have no idea. How are your classmates doing? I have no idea. Not keeping up with them. Not a shared partnership with them. They're not my people. They're people, but they're not my people. But our family, now they're our people. We know how they're doing. We keep up with them. They keep up with us. We like it that way. And it ought to be that way, by the way. It's a good thing. It's a righteous thing. What is he saying here? He said, we are partakers of the same grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He's saying, we're people. We're common people. We're shared people. You care about my life. We're like family. Now, we're not physical family, but we are spiritual family. So we care about people. It's one of the great benefits of church is that we, we have relationships with people who genuinely have an affection for us. We're not unknown. We're not unloved. We're not uncared for. There's a great value. There's a great benefit. God intends this. So the apostle is in Rome. He's not in, in uh, Greece, but this church is in Greece. He's writing a letter to, to Greek people, and he's saying, you share in the same grace, the grace of my shared life circumstances. And his are sorrowful. He's in prison and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He's, he's advancing the cause of Christ. There's a, another aspect that's clearly implied here, and that is that we all have a common need for grace. Isn't that true? I mean, who among us has got it all together? Who among us is not continually in need of more and more and more grace? Again, the apostles' writings are clear First and Second Corinthians, particularly Second Corinthians chapter five, that we are much in need of more and more and more grace. There is a common need. Yeah, he appeals to that at the end of verse eleven, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There is a constant need for us to be resourced, to be resupplied, to get more grace. What God has done for me and what God has done for you is not all that God intends to do. You're still here. You're still in need. And you have a common need. And the Bible is clear. You're partakers with me of grace. He's referencing our common need of the supply of God. What does all this mean for you and me? It means that we recognize that we are frail people. I prefer to think in kind of a linear fashion about life. I work well that way. My mind works that way. Maybe you're a little more organic about life. That's fine. But I'm kind of a linear guy, so start young. Eventually you get old, and eventually you get so old that you die. That works for me. And along the way, there are people that you meet in church who are uh, in process, same as you. I happen to be of a certain age, and I kind of understand circumstances based on my age and based on my experiences and so forth, but other people don't. 
They're not my age. They're not my circumstance. Uh, Beyond that, there's a spiritual continuum, if you will. From zero to 100, you may perceive yourself to be in the upper quadrant of that, or you may perceive yourself to be in the lower quadrant of that, but the reality is there are people at every point along this imaginary continuum. There are people here who are spiritual infants, and there are people here that are spiritual giants, and the rest of us are somewhere in the middle. And the reality is we are working together and we are dependent upon the Lord's grace. How do you go from 10 to 12, and from 12 to 22, and from 27 to 47? How do you move up? How do you grow in Christ? <coughs> Excuse me. I'll tell you how you grow in Christ. You're dependent upon the Lord to resource your growth. We are ultimately dependent upon the fountain of God's grace. We are needy, and we share a common need. I don't think about oxygen much until I don't have it, right? When I was a kid, I should stop there. Uh, Some negative experiences with oxygen, lack thereof, should stop there. But I remember the brother who did it to me. I do remember that. (laughs) But I don't think about oxygen much. But I recognize that every one of you are consuming oxygen. You're here. You're alive. There's color in your face. You're consuming oxygen. The reality is we all need it. We're all dependent upon it. And without it, we all die. That's what grace is. Grace is the source of your life. And the minute you're cut off from grace is the minute you die. It is by grace that you are saved. And it is by grace that you are prospered in this life. And it is by grace that one day you shall leave this life and go on to glory. And everything between those endpoints is all of grace. We are all partakers of grace. But there is another aspect of grace. Very quickly, you'll note he says it here, verse 7. And that is that we have a common participation in the gospel, the work of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel, the advance of the gospel, the growth of the gospel. The apostle alludes to it uh, in verse 21 and following. If, If I am to live in the flesh, it means fruitful labor for me. In other words, the reason that we're alive is fruitful labor. He goes on in verse 23 and says, but if I die, I get to be with Christ. Well, that, that's all good, good. That's great. That's wonderful. That's glorious. That's indeed our reward, and we long for that day. But there's no more fruitful labor possible. When you die, your work is done. And some would say, well, that's good. That's great. Yes. But until then... Your work is not done. Until then, we have reason for life. We have reason for being. You say, well, I don't know know what God wants me to do with my life. Well, I would tell you, you need to get your eyes off the macro and deal with the micro. 
He may just want you to bake a pie for somebody. He may want you to, to just write a card. He may want you to pick up the phone and call somebody and say, how are you doing? There are people who are not meeting with us right now, and you know who they are. Are you calling them, saying, hey, we miss you, we love you, can I encourage you, can I help you, can I pray for you? This is participation. You don't need some program. You don't need some edict from headquarters, wherever that is. Love people. Join with people. Feel with people. Hurt with people. Love people in their circumstances. Participate in sharing the gospel. Build relationships with people. There's a common participation. Paul says, I'm in Rome, you're in Philippi, but I thank you that we all share in the same grace and that you are participating in my life, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. We don't know all the ways the Philippians did that, but just writing letters is a way in the ancient world to tell people, to remind people, to engage with people. And it's still a valid way. It's not the only way. It may not even be the best way. And it may not have to be your way. But whatever your way is to participate in the gospel, I would urge you this morning to get with it. Participate in the gospel. Pray for people. Love people. Communicate with people. Encourage people. And encourage them in Christ. So we all share a common source. And that source is grace. Notice in verse 10 that we all share a common responsibility with that grace. Again, he says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. We all share a common responsibility that our love would abound with knowledge and discernment, verse 9, that we would approve what is excellent, really the word there could be translated best, and to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What we find in the book of Philippians is the reminder that we're not anywhere near finished. We're all growing, that we're all in process, that we're all moving toward Christ. So we share a common responsibility to grow, to grow up, to apply that which we know. Notice how he begins there in verse 9, that your love may abound with knowledge and discernment. Make no mistake about it. The world suggests that knowledge is valuable for knowledge's sake. You will not find that in the Bible. I don't care if you know that Philippians comes before Colossians. That may be helpful, but as long as they have a table of contents, we're all going to be good. People say all the time, well, he really knows the Bible. Well, I think that's wonderful. But does he love his wife? Does he love someone who disagrees with him? Does he love his neighbor as himself? The Bible says that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment the bible celebrates discernment wisdom understanding applied knowledge so you can tear down an engine and build it back well that's great 
But can, do you really understand how all of that connects and moves the car along? If you're a mechanic and can't move the car along, you're not a mechanic, no matter how much you know, right? We understand that somehow this knowledge has to be applied knowledge. The apostle is praying that we share a common responsibility, and that is to know about Christ and to walk in that knowledge. He says as much in the last paragraph of this book, rather this chapter, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We don't have a bunch of folks going every which direction as regards the gospel. We all are on the same page, and that's the gospel page. And we stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side, proclaiming Christ and believing and trusting in Christ and advancing the way of Christ together. We have a common responsibility to love with discernment. Also, verse 10, we have a responsibility to approve what is excellent or to approve what is best. Again, there's an applied wisdom. The point, of course, is you know how to live and you go and do it. You acknowledge that we live in a broken world. We live in a sinful world. We live in a world that has many snares, many temptations, many things that will drag us aside and pull us apart, but we will not fall for that. We will approve what is excellent. We will commit our way to that which is best, and we will not settle for mediocrity. I think about it all the time. Played a lot of Little League baseball back in the day. Never wanted to be on the mediocre team. Never wanted to be. Always wanted to be on the winning team. Always wanted to be on the team that never lost. That did happen once. We had a really good player. And in baseball, you got a really good pitcher. You can go far. Sure enough, we did. But then the rest of the time, played on some mediocre teams. Can I just say winning is better than mediocrity? You say, well, you know, you play for the love of the game. Well, okay, good. I love the game, especially when we win. You think about Jesus what he's done in the church. You know that Jesus didn't save you so that you could be mediocre. He hadn't invested in the manner in which he's invested in you so that you could be mediocre. Come join our team. We aspire to be average. Come join with us. We aspire to be borderline. No. He says, I pray that love would abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is best, what is excellent. God intends for us to strive together. There's another aspect, to be pure and blameless. Verse 10, to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We have a responsibility to show up one day for our appointment. You know, all of life is headed toward appointment, right? 
You understand that? That one day you will stand before God. One day you want to stand before God clothed well as opposed to clothed poorly. You don't want that which has been hidden in this life then exposed to bring shame to the Savior or shame to you. The Bible tells us that everything done in hidden, done in hiding, if you will, done now under the cover of however we hide things in this life will one day be exposed. So the exhortation for the Philippians is that you would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That there would be no, there would be no disappointment. Now obviously none of us are perfect. He's not suggesting that our perfection is based upon us. Ultimately our perfection is an imputed righteousness comes from Christ. But again and again the Bible holds out that this appointment, this day of Christ looms. And on that day, we want to present not only ourselves, but each other. We have a shared responsibility to to not only go to get there ourselves, but to take others with us and to take them in good shape. Again, imagine, if you will, a, a military unit sent off to war and they come back and half of them are shot up and banged up and bandaged up. That's not, the, that's not the objective. The objective is not to limp in with all kinds of sorrow and hurt, but to, rather to come back in one piece, to come back very much alive, to come back safely. The metaphor is that we want to go together, and we want to go together standing side by side. This is what Paul is exhorting the Philippians to do. This is a church he dearly loves. And he wants them to not look around and say, we're in this for ourselves. He wants them to look around and say, we're in this together. We have a shared responsibility. And Paul is a part of us. And though he may be in Rome right now in prison, he is very much a part of us. There's a third thing, quickly, verse 21. And that is, we have a shared responsibility to know that we belong to Christ, to live is Christ. Notice how he says it in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. To live is Christ. That's, that's quite a profound statement. Virtually uh, nobody talks like that. And uh, the reason people don't talk like that is because they don't think like that. They don't actually practice that because really it's much easier to give our attention give our affection give our money give our energy give our angst to everything else the things of this world the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh the pride of life these are pervasive temptations that afflict us all and it's much easier to be a student of this world, the ways of the world, the culture around us, and to say, well, I am, I'm a product of my environment, I'm a product of my upbringing, I'm a product of my family, I'm a product of my training or my education, or I'm a product of my lack thereof, of any of these things. It's easy to say that somehow our lives are defined by earthly things. 
but Paul will have none of it. As we're going to see in this letter, he is very clear in the third chapter to say, I have lived in this world all my life, but I count every bit of it as loss for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. To live is Christ. Christ. To live then is not anything else. It doesn't matter today whether you're in this country or another country. It doesn't matter how how the world would define you or how the world would divide you or how the world would confuse you or point you into some pigeonholed category. Don't fall for that. To live is Christ. Christ is the only scorecard that you and I aspire to to follow. Notice how he asked for help here. He asked for, my my desire is to to be of good courage. You'll you'll note here in verse 20, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. He prays for full courage. What does it mean to to be identified in Christ? It is to be a man or a woman of full courage, that we would not bow down to peer pressure, or we would not bow down to conformity to the world, that we would not be like the world. We would not resort to the same actions. We would not resort to the same vocabulary. We would not resort to the same words as, as pertain to other people. We would not resort to the same tactics of the world. To live is Christ. The, Christ is the, the definition of my life. What do you aspire to? What's on, if you will, your list for what makes your life go? If the answer there is not Christ, then understand there's room for more grace in your life. There's room for you to advance. He continues also in verse 20, that I would not be ashamed, not be at all ashamed. This is an important thing for the apostle. I'm uh, thankful for his witness again and again that he finds himself in prison and he shares Christ. He shares Christ and he, he does it in such a way that, that uh, people are encouraged. Go, go back to uh, verse 13. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, the entire Roman contingent of soldiers guarding the Caesar or the Caesar's assets, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, how would they know that? Because they're sitting around gossiping about Paul? I doubt it. He's just another prisoner. Soldiers have a lot on their minds, and this is just another guy following some sect somewhere. It's not that. It is because this guy following this sect, so-called, is in fact passionate and not ashamed of the gospel. Can you imagine being the jailkeeper supervising the Apostle Paul, the greatest evangelist the world's ever known, the greatest witness for Christ, the most bold and courageous, the one who truly defines his life as being in Christ. Pray that I would not be ashamed, but that will have full courage and that Christ would always be honored in my body. He's not dilly-dallying with earthly things or worldly things or petty things, but instead he's giving himself to the ways of God, to the mercies of God. I would suggest to you that Paul remains 
a profound example and ultimately a profound challenge. Because so many of us are so far from his example. We're just not like this. We find ourselves bemoaning our circumstances and bemoaning the affairs of men and not defining ourselves as being in Christ. What matters today is whether you're in Christ. And after that, well, there are things that matter, but there's nothing that matters anywhere near as importantly. I've often said, and I say again, it's been my privilege to serve hundreds and hundreds of families in funerals. And invariably, when death comes, families are either ready or they're not. And there's obviously a spiritual preparation, there's obviously an emotional preparation. There are other preparations, financial preparations or physical preparations and so forth. All of those things are true and right and, and necessary. But invariably, as I'm helping families, I'm reminded that for most of us, death will come when we don't want it. Death will come for many when we're not planning for it. Death will come when we're maybe not even prepared for it. But it will come. And it appears from our vantage point, which is not the vantage point of God, but from our vantage point, it appears to be indiscriminate. It makes sense when, you know, people who are 130 pass away. It doesn't make sense when young people pass away, when young adults pass away, when fathers and mothers of young children pass away. It doesn't make sense to us. And if all we think about is what makes sense to us, then the grief of death is a profound test, a profound punch in the spiritual gut. And we don't have a process. But the reminder in the book of Philippians is, that we are here for Christ and that even these circumstances that from our vantage point are tragic are still nonetheless able to resound to the glory of Christ. Not in the immediacy of this moment, but in due time resound to the glory of Christ because Christ is at work in our sorrow, in our suffering, in our lives. To live is for the advantage of Christ. To live is for the glory of Christ. So I would simply close by asking you this question. Is your life oriented, calibrated that way? Is your life pointing to Christ, pointing others to Christ, working for Christ, advancing the name of Christ, the cause of Christ, 
the glory of Christ. One day, like me, you too will stand before Christ. And on that day, we want to celebrate that we have spent our life not for our name, not for our glory, not for our affections, but rather for Him. One day, He will call us home to live as Christ and to die is gain. Indeed it is. Because to be with Christ is better. But until that day, may it be said of us that we will not forsake Christ. Let us go together, side by side, loving and approving what is best together. Let's pray now. Father, I thank you that uh, even as Paul writes to the Philippian church, he speaks to our own hearts this morning. I thank you, Father, for your grace for, for me, for these this morning that brought us to life and keeps us, Father, growing. We pray, Father, that our affections would be consistent with you, that we would be devoted to you, that we would be not given to compromise, that we would not be uh, those who take uh, that, that cut corners, uh, that, that take liberties with, with the truth, that take liberties with obedience to the truth, that we'd be faithful, and that having been with Christ, we would demonstrate the way of Christ, the life of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit of God in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. May these things, Father, characterize our lives. How we love you, how we love Christ. Thank you for loving us this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.